Hello, Hope Church. It is a real privilege to be with you today as we wrap up our Coming Home series on the book of Ezra. And we look towards coming together and meeting again in person soon. Now, over the past seven weeks, we have heard the story of how the Israelites came from Babylon to Israel and rebuilt the temple. Today, we're going to look a little bit in more detail at the person of Ezra and what we can learn from him about how God rewards our faithfulness. If you have your Bibles, can you please turn with me to Ezra chapter 7, where we're going to read the first six verses. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Aadab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Bucky, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the law, the, God of, the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So today we're going to look at five points. The first three points will be looking at how we can live faithful lives for God, and the, second, uh, the final two points will be about how God rewards us for our faithfulness. Firstly, though, let's just briefly look at a bit about Ezra so we can find out what he was like. We were told in the verses that I just read that Ezra is a priest. He was a, a, a Levite, um, which is a tribe in Israel. That list of names that I attempted to read out um, told us that he's a direct descendant of Aaron, who was Moses' brother, and they were the ones that led the Israelites out from Egypt. Ezra was a teacher of the law, so the law um, basically was the Bible from those times, so Ezra was a Bible teacher. God brought Ezra to Jerusalem 80 years after the first Israelites came back from Babylon. He was brought to teach them God's law. The Israelites had rebuilt the temple, which was an external demonstration of their return to God, but Ezra came to teach them how God wanted them to live because they needed an internal heart change to really properly avoid the great mistakes that they had made in the past so that they could live as God's people again. They needed to understand God's teaching and choose to live for God again. They needed to understand how to live faithful lives. So we're going to look a little bit at how to live faithful lives for God. My first point is to be faithful with what God has put in front of you. In the verses we just read, um, we found that Ezra was a scribe skilled in God's law. A few verses later, we're told that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra set his heart on the task before him. He was faithful, he was diligent, and he used his specific skills and passion to do the task and play his part in God's great story. We're told that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The fact that Ezra wrote this book and yet didn't actually mention himself until chapter 7 
shows us that he saw his own role as just one very small part of God's greater story. His emphasis was on the broader picture of what God was doing, not on himself. So as we start rebuilding from this last year, it's easy for us to feel overwhelmed. How do we start picking up the pieces and rebuilding after the loss that we have seen in the last 15 months? I would suggest that we do the same as what the Israelites did when they started building the temple. And that is, every person played their role. If we think about it in terms of how a house is built, um, then when a house is built, there are all different players that come together to make it happen. You need bricklayers, carpenters, roofers, electricians, plumbers, a whole host of different skills each skilled in their own area and each focused on the task before them. Now, if a bricklayer started getting distracted by the electrics to sort them, then um, that could not only bring a slightly challenging uh, situation for the electrical department, but it would also compromise the quality and the efficiency of the brickwork. Each worker needs to bring their own skill to the allocated area before them. They trust the construction manager to oversee the work and bring every aspect together to result in a complete house where the occupants can make a safe home. Now, in this analogy, God is our construction manager. We each bring our skills, our experience, our passions to the specific area that God has put in front of us, and we trust him to bring it together for completion. Now, if we become distracted by trying to address issues that aren't ours, then we become disillusioned. The work that is ours to do doesn't get completed, and we get burnt out. So as we rebuild, let's take time to ask God what it is that he has put in front of us to do. That might mean for you just focusing on healing. It might mean focusing on rebuilding key relationships in your life. It might mean serving in an area of church where, like Ezra, you get to use your passions and your skills. Or it might just mean serving in an area of church where you just happen to have capacity for that at the moment. It's so easy for us to get caught up in feeling guilty for not doing everything that we end up doing nothing. You see, God waited 80 years after the Israelites first returned to um, send Ezra to Israel. Ezra knew he was just one small part of God's great rebuild. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you need to wait 80 years for God to get you to play your part, but I am saying that God will use you in the right way at the right time. You just need to be faithful in what is in front of you right now. But how can we be confident that God will use us? I would suggest it's through hearing how others have found God has used them. Which brings me to my second point. As we live faithful lives, let's learn from those who are faithful. So as Jonathan talked about last week, when the Israelites returned from Babylon and rebuilt the temple, it was the older people who remembered the previous temple and recognized that God's presence was not there at the new one. The younger people were celebrating in their success, and yet the older people were weeping because they knew that the most important thing was missing. 
If we move through to the New Testament, then 1 Peter 1 tells us that various trials we face through our lives test the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold. The analogy of gold being purified by fire is used several times in the Bible to describe different trials that we go through that purify our faith. I would ask, who is better to learn from than those who have been through decades of refining fire, whose genuineness of their faith has been tested over so many years? Now, that seems logical, so why don't we automatically do that? I would suggest that our society values or potentially even makes an idol out of independence and productivity. The Bible, however, values faithfulness and perseverance. In 1 Samuel 16, we are told, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance or independence or productivity, but the Lord looks on the heart. So I want to ask you, what do you value? Who do you surround yourself by? Are you getting your life inspiration from momentary quotes written by people you don't know that pop up on your social media? Or from people who have been tested through the years and purified through fire? You see, the Israelites learnt from Ezra, who had spent his whole life studying the law. Who are we learning from? Are we learning from the latest celebrity or life trend or from those who have lived through all the different fads and celebrities and crazes and have seen what's truly important. People who notice when the most important thing is missing. I can't help but wonder what lessons might we learn, what mistakes might we avoid, or what better perspective might we gain if we take the time to seek out the wisdom and experience of those who have gone before us. Now, the Bible gives older generations a really clear mandate to teach younger generations through the wisdom and the experience that they have built up over the years. But it is also no less clear that as younger generations, we are all the poorer if we don't learn from those who have gone before us. Proverbs 16:31 says, Grey hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. I can confidently tell you, Hope Church, that we have a rich crown of glory in our church. We have older people who have remained faithful to God through the decades, and I long to see their true value appreciated and outworked in our church family, because these are our spiritual parents and grandparents. Which leads me on to my third point. As we live faithful lives, let's be faithful to God by living as a faithful family. Mother Teresa once said, the problem with our world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. What does the circle of your family look like? In our opening passage, we read a list of names. Now why, when we're finally, after however many chapters, introduced to the author of the book, is the first thing we're told, a list of 16 of his ancestors. It's because the Israelites were more than just a nation. In the book of Genesis, we can see that they all descended back to one man, Abraham. They were a family. They were united by their father. 
In Ephesians 3.15, we're told that we are united by our Father God, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, a couple of years ago, I was praying for the church, and um, an image came to my mind, and it was of a family sat around the dinner table, sharing a meal and having fun. I was drawn to the sight of different generations all together. You see, they weren't separated in different rooms with the older people in one room and the children in another room and so on. They were all together as a family. I felt a strong reminder that as a church, we are not about different groups and ministries. We're a family. So what does the circle of our family look like? I've been part of Hope Church for 16 years. And in a couple of months, I'm getting married and I'm moving to a new church. Now, when I look back on my time here, I might remember a few good points from the hundreds of preachers that I've heard from this stage. Or I might remember a handful of uh, supernatural moments of worship. But what I will remember most and what will far outweigh everything I take with me is the love shown to me by my church family. I have been loved, I have been challenged, I have been inspired, I've been frustrated, I've been encouraged, and I've had moments where I've disagreed with people because what families haven't? Hope Church, over the years, you have held me through the low points. You have cared for me through serious illness. You've been gracious with me when I've been wrong and you've celebrated with me through the joyful moments. You have been my family, and I will always be grateful for you. This is what it means to be be in the circle of God's family. But I believe that God is calling us to draw our circle wider. As we come back together, can I encourage you to think of how you can be a part of that? I know there are people out there that need a place to belong. I know there are single people of all ages out there and in here who need families to be a part of. I know because I've been one of them for 16 years. I know that there are children without families who need our church to step up to foster and adopt. Psalm 68.6 says, God puts the lonely in families. So I want to ask you, Hope Church, who is he putting in ours? How big are we going to draw the circle of our family? You see, the amazing thing about being part of the family of God is that it's not just a call on how we live, but it's also a blessing that we get to live in. We are already blessed in so many ways. Which brings me to my fourth point, which is that God is already rewarding you. In chapters 7 and 8, Ezra describes the hand of God bringing good to him six times. Ezra already sees the hand of God in so many aspects of his life. Through the king granting his requests, through the safety of his journey, through the courage that he has, through the provision of others, and through protection from those who sought to harm him. Ezra already sees God's favor on him through the different blessings in his life. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been really challenged by that. You see, Psalm 30, verse 5, tells us that the Lord's anger is for but a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. The dictionary definition of favor is an act of kindness beyond what is due or usual. 
That means that God is kind to us beyond what we deserve for our whole lifetime. (laughs) When I reflect on that, it leads me to wonder just how much of God's favor I don't notice. I can be so easily focused on what I need to do or what problem I need to solve that I don't even notice what he's already blessed me with. I fail to acknowledge all that he protects me from and all that he provides me with. So let me ask you, in what areas of your life can you see right now God's hand rewarding you for your faithfulness? How is he giving you favor and kindness that you don't deserve? But be aware that God's favor comes in all different ways. It may seem like a supernatural breakthrough, or it might just seem like quite a normal provision. It could be that God uses other people to bring favor to your life. You see, we're told that the king granted um, Ezra all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord God was on him. The king even sent him with a letter declaring that any Israelite that wanted to go with him could, and he sent him with silver and gold to worship God. You see, sometimes we might miss out on recognizing the hand of God at work in other people because we're too aware of their motives behind their decisions. You see, Persian kings like Cyrus, who sent the Israelites and let them go back to Babylon, or like Artaxerxes, who let Ezra go back to teach the Israelites, they also had their own motives. It's easy for us to look at this story through modern Western eyes and to see the miraculous hand of God behind what they did. However, Persian kings, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians before them, would do whatever it took to strengthen their power. They wanted those they ruled over to believe that the Persians were appointed by God to rule over them. You see, in those times, it was believed that whoever rebuilt a destroyed temple was claiming to have been chosen by the God of that temple to rule over the people that worshipped that God. The original readers of this text would have understood that. And they would have understood that the actions of Cyrus and Artaxerxes were for their own political power and to strengthen their own rule by gaining favor from those they were ruling over. So why do we need to understand that? Because so often we can fail to recognize God's hand in our life because we're so aware of the human motive behind it. Perhaps there is something that you're questioning in your own life. Maybe instead of analyzing the reasons behind it, you just need to lay it out before God and trust him. Trust his perspective. Trust his bigger picture. Which takes us to our fifth point and our final point, which I think is our most important point. (laughs) Our ultimate reward, the whole point of everything that we do, is that we get to be with Jesus for eternity. You see, as we've looked over the book of Ezra and learned about how the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon to rebuild the temple, we do so in the knowledge that since then something far, far greater has come. We no longer need to build temples. We don't need to look shiny and presentable on the outside because we're only saved and we're completely saved by what God has done on the inside. We live in a broken world and I think the events of the last year have only confirmed how much we are not in control and how dependent we are on another to save us. 
The story of Ezra, and in particular the prophetic words of Haggai and Zechariah that Ezra talks about in chapter 5, point us towards the one who is in control. The one who chose to pay the ultimate price to save us. Jesus paid our debt for everything we've done and everything that we will do wrong. He took our punishment so we could be with him for eternity. By accepting what Jesus has done for us, we get to have eternal life with him. But Jesus also teaches us in Matthew chapter 25 that we will be rewarded in eternity for how faithful we've been to him in this life. You see, I think it can be difficult for us to grasp the concept of heaven. I think sitting on clouds, playing harps, would get boring after about two minutes. For me, I'd much prefer country music. That would keep my uh, focus much longer. The truth is, we get discouraged by challenges of this life because we have a poor view of our reward in eternity. I've recently been reading a book called Imagine Heaven by John Burke. In this book, he describes hundreds of people's near-death experiences that they had whilst dead before they were revived. And he draws parallels between these and what the Bible says about heaven and hell. It is fascinating, and it really brings heaven to life. One of the repeated themes that seems to come up in people's near-death experiences when they get a taste of heaven is the feeling of complete peace and exhilarating love. It's, it's that they are finally who they're supposed to be. They're truly alive, and life on earth was like a dream in comparison. Burke points out that we so often view heaven as a shadow of the earth, when in reality, the creator of all the beauty and the wonder and the good of the earth actually resides in heaven. This is how Burke puts it. Imagine an intimacy and oneness that trumps all our relational intimacies, unites all people, and takes away all the mourning, crying, and pain of our past. It's coming. Or this is how the Bible puts it in Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I would suggest that right now those are comforting words of hope that our world needs to hear. So as we close this book of Ezra, I hope that you are encouraged and I hope that you are looking forward to what God has in store for our church family. So let's look to walk in faithfulness in what God has put in front of us, to learn from those who have gone before us, and to live together as his family. God's rewarding us now, but the most important thing to hold on to is that our greatest reward is yet to come. So as we gather as a family of different generations and nationalities around our dinner table, we can know that we are a reflection of the great banquet that we will be together for in heaven. I want to close by reading a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. As you listen, feel free to close your eyes. Let this truth wash over you and give to God anything that you feel is weighing you down or holding you back from living a faithful life. Ask him to show you what he's put in front of you for this next season. Ask him to give you a greater vision of his reward for you. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day where Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world.